Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast and your week in IndyCar show, the guest episode with our man, my man, my co-pilot at Racer Magazine, Robin Miller. Why is Robin coming back so quickly after his most recent appearance? I don't know if you've heard, IndyCar news is kind of sort of exploding. (laughs) Roger Penske hasn't bought anything that we know of, so that part's okay. There's still lots to cover off, though especially with the help of Robin, knowing that he is a Indiana man, Indianapolis man, lives, breathes, born, raised. Actually, wasn't born there, but that's his world. So a lot of your questions that came in last week and this week have really been needing an expert in that locale. So our man Miller helps quite a bit of stuff there. Getting to a number of other things. We recorded this late Wednesday. I am doing this intro here about 1.15 p.m. Thursday. Just broke the news that Spencer Piggott is out at Ed Carpenter Racing, unfortunately, for the 2016 Indy Lights champ, 2014 Pro Mazda champ, 2013 USF 2000 champ. You'll hear that Robin and I cracked this open a little bit last night. I'd been chasing this since Monday on the Spencer front in particular, having heard from multiple sources that his option, despite the team saying they would, was not actually signed off on and that he was indeed looking for opportunities elsewhere. So I'd be lying if I said I remember everything we discussed regarding ECR last night, but that's in here. So if it sounds a little bit off, don't be surprised because it was speculation last night. Uh, throw this in here, and I'll mention this in my listener Q&A show, which I still have to record. I apologize that we're running about a day behind this week. It's been a week. Um, there's a website, I don't think it was Dutch maybe, that got everyone uh, up in arms, up in something today about Nico Hulkenberg joining Renus VK at Ed Carpenter Racing. The Renus part as you've probably heard me say many times in recent weeks on this show, was expected to go full-time at Ed Carpenter Racing. Didn't know whether it was going to be two full-time cars, keeping Spencer plus Renus, and then someone slotting into the road and street courses in Ed's car. Uh, Expansion, was that going to be the way that Renus came in? We originally thought two months ago, whatever the timing might have been, that Renus would be the road and street course guy. Ed would do the ovals uh, in the number 20 car. Spencer would be full-time. As we now know, that has morphed a bit. We know that Spencer's out. They haven't confirmed it, but we're waiting to hear that Renus is in. We expect that to happen. The Hulkenberg angle, it's an interesting one. So, as I understand, the website that reached out looking for some sort of clarification on both drivers, the... Hulkenberg one, maybe being the greatest question mark. I don't believe they got a 100% strict denial. I think, I know for a fact that depending on how journalism is practiced in certain nations and regions, it's not critical, it's just a difference. In some places, a no comment or a we do not have anything to offer on the subject, can't say anything at this time. Instead of that being received as a 
there's no news and or the team would not confirm anything to the positive, that can be taken as, well, they didn't deny it. Therefore, it either must be true or it must be possible since they did not explicitly say no to this person's name, that person's name. That can then, as practiced by some people, some places, be spun into a, well, ha, 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 there we go. I think you might find that the Hulkenberg angle, not the Renus angle, again, we've been expecting that for a long time, been saying that, but the Hulkenberg angle, I think that's making something out of nothing. Do I think Carpenter might have spoken with him at some point? Maybe. I don't know. Do I think Ed Carpenter Racing could afford Nico Hulkenberg? No. And that's no disrespect to the team, but the move away from Spencer was done in part for financial reasons. If you are moving away from a developing promising young driver for a rookie who brings sponsorship, it would tell you the team is not just spending day and night counting their dollars. Nico Hulkenberg, 10-year Formula One driver, we wouldn't expect him to drive for free, much less accept a modest sum, which is something that too many car drivers receive. Could this change in the coming weeks, months, whatever? It's possible. Anything's possible. But I would just say the Hulkenberg angle might be one to pump the brakes on, for sure. Before we get into our Q&A with Robin Miller, just wanted to share up front that a good friend of ours, genuinely good friend of ours, Robert Wickens, has a brand new website, Robert Wickens Merch, M-E-R-C-H dot com where you can buy things, T-shirts, sweaters, I think there's baby apparel, hats, a wide variety of things. I texted with Robert, said, hey, is this yours? Or did some person take an opportune twist and start a store selling stuff in your name that you don't know about? He said, nope, that's mine. I said, all right, let me ask another dumb question. If people buy things, do those profits go to you? To which he said, yes, they do. Well, we love ourselves, some Robert Wickens. And knowing that he is not currently making big race car driver dollars during his fight to get back to the cockpit, I would just say, if you join me in an appreciation for the man as a professional athlete, but also as a mighty fine human being, pay a visit robertwickensmerch.com. I've got nothing to do with it. It is 100% a Robbie Wickens thing. And just sharing the fact that a friend has a new business venture where if you spend money with him, it actually helps him. So that's one quick note. We'll throw in another one for another friend, that being my man Dave Duzik. His Dave Duzik Foundation and their every December charity function they put on. Well, it's happening again. They are doing it at IMS yet again. They're doing a bit of a celebrity bartender type thing. Charlie Kimball, IndyCar driver, will be there. 
my pal Jamie Howe, one of the world's finest pit lane reporters, will be there. Along with Jamie, she will also have her pal Amanda Buzik, another sports reporter. Uh, the vaunted Orange Cone from the world of the social medias, the tweeters and the book faces and the mass spaces. The Orange Cone will be there. Uh, Cabot Bingham will be there. And Dreddy Rally, Cost, Rally Cross Driver, the Rally Cost side, definitely an underported aspect of his career. And also a big lump. This is truly a big lump of sexiness and warmth with uh, swimming undertones of cantankerousness. Bell Racing Helmets, Chris Wheeler will also be there. So would tell you that if you want to go have some fun, I would say be served some drinks from people who are probably going to do a horrible job. I expect them to taste very bad, but it's meant to be a fun thing. Off season, go and spend some time at the Indy Motor Speedway's Pavilion. This is on December 12th. It's a cool little charity thing. Fun people get together. There's alcohol involved. Drive safely. Drink safely. No, don't drink. Take, take risks with the drinking. Drive safely. It all helps the Dave Duzik Foundation, uh, their little bartender challenge they're doing. So, anyways, if you're bored, if you want to go and do good things, as I hear somebody firing up a little uh, gas-powered uh, weed blower, something blower here, check out DaveDuzikFoundation.org. Tickets are whatever they cost. They go to a good thing. So, Robbie Wickens, some good stuff you can do there to help our man and also our pal Dave Duzik in his ongoing foundation that benefits children's hospitals and just these are good people doing good things. So always want to share and amplify when I hear about those items. With all that said, if you haven't, if you don't know, if you don't care, well, I'll share the fact that MarshallPruittPodcast.com is a place where every episode we've ever published awaits your attention. If you have yet to subscribe, every method to do that as well is contained on a little page called subscribe. And as we start our walk towards Robin Miller, definitely need to say thank you, quadruple thank you, to our partners that do make the show possible in Cooper Tires, those who support the road to Indy, also to the Justice Brothers, whose automotive chemicals and lubricants have been a part of my life since 1986. Not a joke. Great, great people at the Justice Brothers. TorontoMotorsports.com. They're silly. They're truly silly. There's a shirt coming out, by the way, that we've just, uh, is an idea brought from the show a few weeks ago when Miller was on. I think you're going to want to buy it. As soon as we get a photo of him wearing it, I think you're going to want to buy it. It's it's the best best idea yet. And then finally, in reference back to that Wheeler guy, Bell Racing Helmets USA. Just awesome people and awesome partners that make this little silliness, this little audio adventure we do on a weekly basis possible. All right, off with our man Miller. We're going to talk IndyCar. I don't think we curse too much either, so uh, very few earmuffs moments. And let's get going with the 70-year-old windbag. It is a Robin Miller episode. Feels like you're just here. Well, wait a minute, you were. Then, well, Roger Penske goes and buys Earth, and all of a sudden we need to have Robin Miller back because who better to help contextualize criticize glamorize anything involving eyes this transaction how you doing brother oh good 
uh, yeah, we've had quite a bit to write about you and I the last 10 days. Some of it worth reading, even. Uh, I would uh, go so far as to suggest, not all of it, but, but possibly, possibly some of it. All right, well, you've plugged in your phone, so hopefully it won't die, but we'll see how far we get. And we've got a lot no, of questions, as usual. It's good. All right. Well, I was trying to give you an easy way to bail out whatever you wanted to, but you didn't take the bait, so there you go. Let's get rocking and rolling with our man Jordan Darwin. Miller, what is the local reaction to this news of Penske's purchase of everything IndyCar and IMS? He says both immediately when it happened and now that maybe the news has sunk in a week later. Well, I think the people that have lived in Indianapolis their whole life, like me, or, or people have lived here a long time, just assumed it would always be in the home and George family, and it would never be sold, because we've heard this rumor so many times in the past 25, 35, 45 years. Speedway's being sold, yeah, right, yeah. And it was like the boy call, you know, crying wolf, and then after it happened, after the shock wore off, that the, the, it, not so much a shock that... The fact that Roger Penske bought it was about as well received as anything I can remember in the 50 years I've covered motorsports. I mean, I didn't, I think I've got over 400 emails and I think one of them was kind of negative. It was like, you know, what's going to happen when he dies? They'll sell it to the wrong person. I mean, you know, somebody, but I mean, it's just unanimous. It's almost unanimously been just uh, approved and, and applauded because people realize Roger's going to do it right. He's going to have a group of people that he's going to, I mean, I think Greg Penske will be the guy running the show and between Roger's marketing staff and just the fact that he's Roger Penske and he can walk into any boardroom in the, in the world and, and get things done. I just think not just for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, but for IndyCar in general, it's, it's probably the best thing that's ever happened. Let's go to James Balk who says, Robin, what is the biggest impact you see Penske bringing to both IMS and IndyCar? Just that, the ability to go get a third engine manufacturer, the ability to go get a title sponsor for the Indy 500, the ability to raise enough money with sponsorship to get the purses where they belong. And I just think, you know, Penske has a, you know, I mean, he basically went to Detroit and said, you're going to have a suite, you're going to sponsor this, you're going to do that. Now, is it going to be that easy here? Probably not that easy, but he got, you know, he's so well-respected around the world. He'll be able to do things that nobody has ever done before. Miles said, Mark Miles said the other day, they've got more sponsorship. they got more sponsorship within the Penske organization than the IndyCar Series and IMS combined. So that's, that's really, for me, it's, it's his ability to get things done and to follow through wonder and i'm just floating this as a crazy idea i wonder if we could get verizon to be the title sponsor crazy ideas crazy crazy you know and when we say a title sponsor it's not like i mean gainbridge it's great that they're the they're the presenting sponsor we need a five or six or seven million dollars title sponsor the budweiser indy 500 and put all that money right in the purse that's what we need Let's go to Pat Smith. He says, I've heard RP talk about establishing a top 10 list of things he'd like to accomplish at IMS for the 500. He says, obviously, we don't know what that list consists of. But what would you guys like to see put on that list of priorities? 
Well, just what I said, a title sponsor, a third engine manufacturer, bring back the apron, uh, clean up the pave, pave all the roads, quit charging people to park, uh, you know, make the prices. Don't charge yet. Yeah, don't charge people to come to the speedway and park, you know, maybe race day, I suppose, but don't no other time. I mean, just be happy they're there. And he'll, he'll upgrade the facility, the restrooms. I think he'll bring in more suites. Uh, will he upgrade the, the grandstands? Maybe. I, I just think there's just things that he can do. Upgrade the Wi-Fi system, uh, especially since they're going to have gambling next year. During the NFL. They've got to upgrade their Wi-Fi system, and they've got to make it more. So not people can just bet, but people can also listen to, you know, on the phone, the Bluetooth, they can actually hear the race being called. So uh, I'd say that's that'd be a pretty good start. Now, he spent one day walking around the track and, and, and taking notes and, and making comments and nobody really shared what he, what he, what his uh, thoughts were. But I, I think, you know, that's probably close to what they were in that, in that ballpark anyway. I wish I could have been there to take them to some of the more remote locations. Hey, let's walk into this men's room. <laughs> Notice how the floor is completely wet notice that the open trenches i mean notice the yeah. fungus growing in the corner um you know i something between aids herpes and uh the ebola virus is being cooked up over there in the corner i mean there are some areas and every i'm not saying it's a, a property-wide issue not at all just saying although a lot of the place looks somewhat modern and renovated there are still some sections where you go Ooh, boy, if I got a, if nature's calling, I'm putting it on hold because there's no way I'm contracting a virus in there. Uh, there's, you know, some places where you might want to go buy some food or drink where you go. Yeah, I don't know. So it, it'll be interesting, Pat, to see how, how Roger and his team treat the facility. Do they want to turn it into a cosmopolitan thing or is there are they going to have a proper recognition that, you know, for some folks who come out, they're maybe not looking for the luxury suite, luxury box type thing, and they like, you know, a little more meat and potatoes type of uh, uh, opportunities and, and things to buy. So they'd just be curious to see what they do. Uh, we've got a couple questions, Robin, on the this topic of command start engines. Vincent Anderson, Robin, who would you put your money on for saying, uh, I hope, ladies and gentlemen, start your engines. Tony George, Roger Penske, Mrs. Penske, or someone else. John Hollinger says, Robin, who would you choose to give the command to start engines? And Justin Brockwell says, so now that Roger owns IMS, he will choose himself to give the command, right? What do you think? Uh, I think Tony George would be the logical guy since he's the one that's told Mark Miles, you know, we can't sell this till we offer it to Roger. We've got to give Roger a chance, and I think, that was the smartest, you know, one of the smartest decisions he made in his life so far. And I think Roger will reciprocate. I, I do. I mean, I said something jokingly in the mailbag about Kathy Pinsky. All she's gone through, she, she probably ought to get a chance to say, gentlemen, start your engines. But I'm not sure Roger would do that. But I think Tony would be the legitimate, can't, legitimate guy to do it. And, uh, you know, hopefully to avoid World War III, he won't bring in Donald Trump. I, I don't know. I mean, no, how's no, this? I, got, I don't. I mean, I hate all politicians, 
but I've already got about 15 emails divided. I hope it ought to be Donald Trump. It better not be Donald Trump. Well, God, God forbid that I don't think Roger would do that. I really don't. Uh, here's the thing. And this is being honest. I'm calling you from California. We would assume that if the speedway was in California, that invitation would probably not go out, but it certainly would not be well received by the audience. Just knowing that the left coast tends to lean uh, far, far away from Trump like things. I don't know. I mean, I would think Indiana knowing that the vice president is from Indiana. Part of me thinks Donald Trump being the person to give the command or whatever else might get a massive applause. I'm not saying I know this based on fact. I'm just saying it seems more like a red state than a blue state. So I don't know. What do you think? Do you think uh, the the crowd would, would embrace him? No, you're right. I mean, and you know, Parnelli and AJ and, 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 and bless his heart, uncle Bobby and Dan Gurney. I mean, they were, they're definitely, they were definitely, they're definitely Republicans, definitely conservatives. And a lot of racing people are. So you're to your point, I think you're probably right. It would probably be more well-received here than anywhere else, or at least a chance to be well-received here more than anywhere else. It's just that, I don't know, you just put, you know, I don't want to see the emphasis taken off the race. I guess. Yeah. That would that would be my, you know, we don't need a, we don't need a, a, a three-ring circus on top of the Indy 500. Yeah, and I, I guess that's maybe two different realities. I think regionally it would be very popular i think if in the interest of growing the indy 500 knowing that there's many americans you know say modern generation americans not the the 40 and older crowd probably a demographic that roger penske in the speedway is still trying to court hey your grandpa maybe talked to you about it but we want to get you to care about it maybe thinking outside of the midwest maybe inviting president Trump to do be there in whatever celebrated fashion uh, might be more divisive uh, for a track that, you know, to your point, maybe isn't wanting to get in on politics, but whatever it is or whatever ends up happening, uh, it'd be an interesting thing for sure. Um, It would be an interesting thing for sure. Tony could have his three sisters that all, all four of them could say gentlemen star attention. That'd be fine. That's the family, you know? I think that would probably be pretty fitting. Let's go to Ed Davis. It says, I doubt we will see any changes to the Indy 500 qualifying procedure for next year, but do either of you think Roger will change it for 2021 and beyond or keep it the same? I mean, I would just say, Ed and, and Robin, tell me if you agree. I think Roger's going to look at it and say, it's too simple. You know, we it needs to be more complicated. How could we make the Indy qualifying process more complicated. Okay, a little bit of humor there. I still don't understand it, Ed. By the way, I I I'm I do this for a living, and every Robin can tell you, he and I he watches me try and read through this convoluted procedure every year, and I, I I'm still just baffled by how most of it works. Well, you got you had those two lines. I never I could never figure that out. It's just simplified a little bit would be probably good. A guy had an interesting suggestion today. He says, "Hey Miller, if if Penske sticks, if 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 Penske wants to go ahead and guarantee thirty spots or whatever he's talking about, twenty six or whatever it is, twenty eight, 
But he said, how about just having, after the 32 qualifiers, having a, uh, a promoter's option for the 34 spot? So if a James Hinchcliffe misses the show or a former winner or a former champion has mechanical problems and like that, you could add him. And I, that's that's fine by me. The reason I think these people get so upset, they're all mad at me because they said, oh, you're, you're such a traitor. You used to say it was that was the last sacred thing was making the race. Well, yeah, till 28 and 5, and this has got nothing. 28 and 5 was about power. This was just about protecting. 25 and 8. Protecting your investment. And the thing of it is, you have to be smart. You don't, you know, NASCAR would never have the Daytona 500 without its stars. And you can't, you know, we're trying to get people to watch this stuff. And you, you just can't do it without your without your best teams and your best drivers, I don't think. And the thing it is, it ain't like there's 50 cars going for 33 spots. We're going to bump one or two people. Great. Who cares? Start them all. I said that five years ago. Oh, blasphemy. You should be strung up by your neck. That's okay. It is blasphemy, but it's not really because look at what we're talking about here. All right, if we're throwing out ideas, and I think guaranteed spots is the dumbest thing ever, and I think you should be killed as well. Thank you. What about if we're just going to try and do, if we're going to monkey with tradition, why don't we do it by bringing in a well-known tradition? So if we're going to do some sort of X numbers guaranteed and... You know, let's let's just say for argument's sake, we're going to go with the twenty-five and eight rule. Twenty-five guaranteed spots, eight aren't to get your thirty-three. Let's say five of those eight can be earned through the five fastest non-guaranteed cars to qualify, leaving the last three. Maybe the remainder of however many entries there are, those three plus whatever number. How about an LCQ? How about a last chance qualifying and the, the, the top three that win that heat race? I don't know what it is. 50 laps, something like that. They get into the Indy 500. Uh, well, you know, the, uh, the thing of it is, is you got to think about what's the best thing for television. Uh, a, a, a heat race to get into the Indy 500 would be, would be great. I just like to see it pay money. I don't, I just, just making the race, you know, you only make $203,000 and make the race. So make sure if you do something like that, you have a sponsor. Just like if you have fast time each day, there should be a sponsor. If you win the poll for the Indy 500, it should be a million dollars, not a hundred thousand. But I think RP's the guy that can maybe get this thing, you know, ratchet it up. But again, you don't need to guarantee. I mean, all you got to guarantee, all, all Pinsky was talking about, I think last year with, with Chip and with Ray Hall were, should we look at, should we look at locking in the 22 full-time cars? And that leaves 11, you know, at least 14 going for 11 spots or whatever it was, which is, you know, that, I mean, to me, it, it's just, it's not, it's not, it quit being the old days in 1996. And all, all these people talk about tradition and, oh my God, we can't trample. Tra- tradition was trampled. It was trampled long, long, long ago. And the fact is, do we have enough cars now to fill the field without having the speedway add cars at the back? Yeah, and that's good. But until we get 40 or 45 cars, calm down, folks. And if, if you're going to kill me, I get to pick the poison. I, just... I, I pick I pick a cross-country trip with Bruce Martin in a closed car. Huh. <laughs> What's wrong with that? 
It'd be a slow death. Robin, it's slow death. Robin Miller reached across from the passenger seat and steered the car into an oncoming semi. Uh, shortly after reaching I-465 on the trip, uh, the entire oh. mileage completed 0.37. Um, yes. Oh, no. Uh, I, did. I, I get a long climb with Bruce, but I think in a closed car, it might be, it could, it could be a painful death. It could be. His final words at first believed to be red rum was brisket. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Let's go to Don Gregory. Robin, do you think Penske will bring back the apron? to indy i think danny sullivan has sent me a text message an email and called me and i said danny you won the indy 500 for him you call him well i don't know if he'd listen to me i said well, of course he's gonna listen to you and you explain to him how that whole thing the apron helped make your victory one of the most memorable of all time and you know there's so many i mean lloyd ruby going through the grass and mar and, and michael and mirrors i mean there's i, I just think the, the apron was taken away because it was a guy that used to work at the Speedway that convinced everybody, all oh, the angles these cars are hitting and breaking guys' legs are because of the apron. No, it's because the drivers were sitting in front of the wheels, the front wheels. That's where they're getting their legs and their ankles pulverized. And I think Terry Tram will even tell me once he goes, that, that theory is bullshit. That's, that did not, that's not true at all. So it's time to bring the apron back. More than anything, if you're going to keep the NASCAR race, which Roger says, of course, he is, at least give them a chance maybe to pass somebody. Completely. Let's go to Chuck Mulkey. Do you, he says, do you think the Penske Entertainment Group will put up lights at the Speedway? He says, hashtag me personally. I'd like to see just a move, uh, move the Brickyard 400 to a Saturday night. Now for the crazy idea, move the Indy 500 to Saturday to possibly improve the chances of drivers doing the double. Absolutely. Move the Indy 500 so that drivers, so that IndyCar drivers would have an easier time to do a NASCAR race. Yeah, and run 28th. Yeah, that'd be great. Move the Indy 500 for a NASCAR race. I just want to confirm this is the suggestion we've received. No. Uh, um, uh, how Miles, about lights? Miles and Pinsky have both said we're talking $20, 25000000 million to put lights in. And you know how long it take to recoup that? Because I don't think lights are going to solve the attendance problem at the brickyard. Uh, I I don't I, I'm sorry. It might draw another five thousand people, but it ain't going to help with that much. And I you know, Indy always has to be Indy has to be run during the day. I know people will say, well, God, it would help the TV ratings, and it probably would. But you know that that I just think it, the Indy 500 was meant to run at eleven or twelve or in the middle of the day, and I I hope we stick to that. Lee Vague says, does the captain's purchase of the series, Robin, increase the likelihood of bringing back some ovals like Fontana, Chicagoland, Homestead, Kansas, Kentucky, etc.? Do you think that fixing the imbalance on the schedule, which is so road and street course heavy these days, do you think that's even on RP's register right now? I think the only thing on RP's register is are there people out there that want to have our race that'll pay a sanction fee that have a chance to break even or make a little money? We'll talk to anybody that has that, you know, anybody that has that capability. The, the honest to God truth is, is Michigan and Kentucky and Fontana. I mean, they know that it's, it's ovals are such a loser right now for everybody. 
And our buddy Dave out at Fontana, would, he, he'd try it again if it was Saturday night in October. Absolutely. But uh, Kentucky would seem to be the, the most logical because it's in the, in the wheelhouse of all our, our fan base. And they repaved it. And, you know, it could probably be somewhere that, you know, I think when Jay Fry talks about a doubleheader, he talks about Richmond. Uh, you know, they talked about Texas. They talked, you know, I think Kentucky would, and Chicago would both be places where NASCAR runs and you could run a Saturday night IndyCar race and a Sunday afternoon NASCAR race. But, again, they have to show some interest. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the Speedway could, or I mean IndyCar could go to them, but, you know, it's, it's you're not going to have, you're just not going to have people, they're not knocking the doors down to put ovals on for IndyCars or NASCAR right now, and there's a reason. It's so hard to get people to go. So, you know, Gateway has been the great, great exception to this whole thing, but believe me, they got a huge title sponsor, and they promote the hell out of it, and it's, it's working right now because they work so hard at it. I liken the situation to folks that love a band that was once really popular and now time has gone on 20 years, 30 years. They're still around. They're still touring, but they aren't, their albums aren't going gold or platinum or otherwise. And you say, okay, Ario Speedwagon, <laughs> Night Ranger. <laughs> Where where should we hold a concert? Should we go to a 75,000-seat stadium? Sounds amazing. Wouldn't that be great? The financial losses in for the promoter when they get 3,000 people to show up would be just crushing. The, there's a reason that the REO Speedwagons and, and Night Rangers play clubs or smaller arenas, smaller arenas, uh, casinos, that kind of thing. Not because they're bad, but just that's no, they're no longer commanding the super gigantic stadiums that they might have done twenty or thirty years ago. So, no. I would love to go back to Fontana and see freaking waves of people blanketing the grandstands. Ain't happening. Ain't going to happen. So the should we, would just as passionate people, 100%. Keeping in mind that we're not the ones that have to pay for it or deal with the freaking giant losses, you know, that's where those folks go, yeah, sure, we'd love it too. It, yeah, you, tell, you give us the money, we'll put on the show. Uh, but we sure as heck aren't coming out of pocket. Uh, we're not going to go broke for your amusement. So that's the, right. uh, that's the sad reality. Um, Rockford Stephen asks a question that seems to continue to be asked, and I know that we continue to answer it. What's Roger Penske's secession plan? And this stems from an 82-year-old human being has purchased something that a lot of people love, has racing teams that has numerous fans. There are obvious questions of <clears throat> Roger is not going to live to be 200. So, I know the answer because I've said it and written it many times recently. Would you be kind enough to explain the plan? Well, I mean, I think we all know Tim Sendrick will take over the racing side, and I think Greg Penske will run the business side, and and uh, Kip Penske, Roger Penske Jr. will have a big role in it also. And, you know, they have this – they've got Bud Danker, and they've got all these, 
they've just got such a master. He, Roger is such a master organizer, organizer, and he's got such a good marketing team. I mean, Miles said it best. He said, you know, we're inheriting. I mean, they basically are going to have come to us and said, okay, first year or so here, we're going to try and do whatever we can to help you guys. What do you need? Because they can do everything and they're good at it. So I, I just think Roger's going to live to be a hundred and AJ's going to live to be 101. So let, we don't need to worry about that for a few years. I like that answer. I like it a lot. Uh, let's go to a grumpy one for you. And I, maybe this was a mailbag answer. I never know all the things you do between radio TV and whatever. So I apologize that I can't give the context of where you said this that angered Matthew Unger says, ask Robin why putting lives in danger would have positive, a positive viewership impact because as a quote, soft millennial, Robert Wickens devastating back injury and Dan Weldon's and Antoine Hubert's heartbreaking deaths make racing harder, not more enjoyable to watch. Robin's comments really angered me. So maybe I don't know where you made those comments, but, and I don't know the framing of it, but whatever you said has really angered Matthew Unger. Uh, I got no, I mean, I think the only thing I've ever said is, is, what I've said for as long as I've been alive is the element of danger is one of the attractions to auto racing. It always has been the fact that the fact of the matter is they've made it safer and safer. And that's a good thing, but don't make it too safe because if it's not dangerous and anybody can do it, then nobody's going to come watch it. Nobody's going to care. Nobody's, nobody's advocating being maimed or paralyzed or killed. That's obviously not, Nobody wants to see that. It's just that you got to be, you, you have to understand that racing, when it took a hold of the, the American public, you know, post-World War II, I mean, it was, they were the gladiators of the day in the 60s and, and the 50s and even in the 70s. So, yeah, it was a very lethal time, but it's also still the reason that AJ and Mario and Rutherford and the Unsers and John Cock and Parnelli are still revered is because, they survived that era, and they they only not only survived, they thrived. So, I'm not sure what he's what he's talking about as far as I mean. That, the only thing that's the only thing I ever repeat is that that racing there has to still be an element of danger in racing to make it appealing. Well, what would you know, Miller? This is uh, well. This is quite true, Marshall Howard Bennett. So with Clabber Girl sold previously and the IMS IndyCar uh, property's gone as well, what now remains of Holman and Company, and is this the end of the company completely? Great question, because Robin just wrote about it. Uh, they they own some buildings and land in Terre Haute. I don't know if they still have the coal mines there. Sorry, the oil mines. Coal. Uh, There's coal uh, mines in Terre Haute. Ooh. Sorry, oil fields. Oil fields in Terre Haute. Uh, they, just, they had a few years ago, there's a big story about that. So Mark Miles said that will probably become Holman and Company, and everything that's got anything to do with racing will become Penske um, Entertainment. And uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not exactly sure. You know, the Holmans they had television and radio stations. They sold off all those in the last fifteen, twenty years. Those are all gone. So you know, they have they have property and they have 
evidently some buildings and some land. So um, that's that's just going to be Holman and company. And because I said to Miles, Mar- I said, what will you do? And he said, well, Roger said, I'll be the CEO of, of, of Penske Entertainment. So uh, I'm, I imagine he would keep his eye on Holman and company or maybe they maybe it spins off and somebody else runs it. That's one of the family members. I don't know. It's got a couple of questions here that are mucho interestante as I blend languages that don't exist. Uh, let's go to Clay Williams to start. Robin rumor has it that Tony George had you escorted out of the track during the early years of the split. Is this true? And if so, how long before Penske has you escorted out? <laughs> no, that never happened. Uh, they came to the star once to try and have my credentials re- revoked. And I think Bob Walters, who was the PR man at the time, who I hired as a star in the sports department a decade before that, convinced them that was not a good idea. It was kind of like when they were going to ban Ed Hinton from Sports Illustrated from covering the race. And I tried to explain to Tony, Ed Hinton had nothing to do with the picture in Sports Illustrated of the poor man that was killed at the Charlotte race. Ed Hinton wrote the story. It has nothing to do with the headline or who picks out the pictures or where the words presented in, in the magazine. So the, the funny thing was there was a rumor out that I was going to be banned. So Dan Gurney had called me up one day and said, hey, if they ban you from the track, I'm going to rent one of those big cranes with a bucket in it, and you can sit outside the first turn. I'll put an AAR decal on it. I said, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> and you throw tomatoes at people. I love it. Quite true. All right. couple ones here that I, I look forward to your answers on this. Our pal John Sable, thanks, John, says, Gentlemen, how's history going to judge Tony George? As we get a bunch of feedback. As time has gone on, stories have emerged giving his side of the split. And while not executed well, I sympathize to a degree with what he was trying to accomplish. Now it appears like he's taken a pivotal role in getting the Speedway in the series into the best hands. John says, I wonder if this act and time will ease his place in history. And uh, Mike Stoops has one similar. Uh, Tony George took a lot of heat when he started the IRL. He says, I was on the cart side with the passing of the torch. I'd like your overview of Tony, whether the criticisms were deserved or undeserved, and maybe how uh, he's been misunderstood by the cart faithful. So interesting. Um, where do, where do you think this decision to sell to Roger? Do you think this reframes Tony George as a good guy, bad guy, or will folks that have held a grudge just never let it go? I think I've said it. I think I said it last week, and I, and again in the mailbag. I think he deserves a lot of credit for you know going. He was his idea. He told Mark Miles when they were it was it was there were two companies bidding for it one of them was liberty media and tony said i think we should give roger a chance and you know because he understands the stewardship is so important here's the thing tony's tony couldn't have started the irl the worst time we've been over that it's all you know we understand that but he put the thing back together in 2008 spent his own money got it back together so i think that was the first i think that was the first good move in, in terms of all right Let's try and salvage this thing and get it back under one roof and see what we can salvage out of this whole mess and see if we can get people to watch this stuff again and come and, and attend it. So I think between putting the putting the, the two sides back together in 2008 and then taking an aggressive role in this 
the sale of the speedway, I, I think both those things should, should, you know, I think they should reflect, reflect well when people judge him at, at the end of his, his life or the end of his days in, in, in racing. And I think, um, you know, people say, well, yeah, you can say that now, Miller, you trashed him. Yeah, yeah, I was pretty tough on him. There's no doubt about it. And I think, you know, most of the stuff I said was true and it ended up being true. And I lost a lot of friends and a lot of jobs doing it. But he believed in what he was doing. I believed in what I was saying. How's that? But as far as he was concerned, he was concerned that engine leases and, and favoritism were, were ruling, the, ruling the day. And isn't it ironic, when the IRL started, and you were right in the middle of it, Marshall, working for an IRL team, if they'd have stuck to their guns and just made it ovals with American engines, anybody can build them, no engine leases, and just not followed what CART did, maybe it makes it. it not, not in 1996, but if you'd have started in 1989, it might have worked. But I think it became, AJ called it, AJ said it best, he goes, he goes, about 2002, A.J. Foyt said, this is nothing but cart light. That's all we've become. And it was true. So what would have been good for Tony would have been good to have a Joe Cloutier, uh, a guy a, a guy that he could really count on telling the truth uh, about everything, rules, tracks. And instead he had a bunch of people that were out, out to, you know, for their own good. And unfortunately we saw what happened i mean it's just it, it fractured things and it's taken a long long time for people to forget some never did some never will but i think it's gradually you know it's starting to it's starting to climb back up a little bit it's certainly not where it was in 1993 four or five but it, it's gaining i think one of the items that has never been fully explored about the shortcomings on the tony side he hired who he knew and I'm not saying those people were bad, you know, Leo Mel being one of them, right? He hired right. people that he knew and empowered them to come up with the vision, the scope, the rules, the management, you name it. Tony obviously is the lightning rod. He is the point person for all the bad things, negativity, etc. Undeserved in many ways. Not every way, but in many ways. I think Tony's biggest fault was he got fed up with IMS being marginalized in terms of power and authority in what Cart was doing, wanted to have a bigger voice, bigger sway, was not heeded or listened to, threatened to take Cart's biggest property away, eventually did, and I would just say his, his failure the greatest failure wasn't in the concept or many other things. It was, I can't say that in many cases he surrounded himself with the best people to execute that idea. And, or as you said, a Joe Cloutier or similar to say, no, that that's the wrong way to do it. It was honestly a bunch of very good people who had done a variety of very good things in other forms of the sport what it didn't have was really high-level visionaries to make this thing sing. And so what you got was, well, these are the people that I know. I put them all together. We're going to do this thing. And it was just never quite right. Uh, it was never quite there. It was never fully baked. And I don't know if it ever really, truly recovered. 
Uh, it, no. It, it took the waiting out. I don't know if I should say waiting out, but it took cart teams saying, we're going to Michigan for a 500 and year after year trying to sell their sponsors on. No, there's still great value even without the 500. It took that five, six, seven years, however many years it was, uh, for those sponsors to eventually go, yeah, not really. Uh, you know, Penske was the first to really break ranks. I mean, I know Foyt jumped over, you know, uh, right away, but of the cart holdouts, uh, Penske, I believe, was the first to break ranks. Uh, Pen, uh, F- Portland, no, Phoenix, 2001. And then it was after that, you know, Ray Hall was do- running split entries in both series. Ganassi was there. Andretti, uh, what became Andretti Green Racing, and so on and so forth. But, you know, uh, eventually everyone came to the realization that even though this IRL thing is not awesome at that stage, we are probably not going to exist for a whole lot longer with corporate support uh, if we don't go back to the place that everyone knows about and everyone wants to be at, that being the 500. So, yeah. let, me, let me throw this in. Dale Coyne said once, you know, we did a poor job of embracing Tony back in the 90s. We should have, we should have asked his opinion more often, and we, you know, you know we're, we're, we're to blame for some of this too because we were pretty arrogant about that. I'll also say that Tony Bentonhausen was one of my dear friends. He was a farmer then, and he used to say that in the meetings, Tony would never say anything. In the meetings, he would never show his displeasure about anything that was discussed in the cart board meeting. Then they'd go out in the parking lot, and he'd start bitching, and Tony Bentonhausen would say to Tony George, Jesus, why do you bring that up in the meeting? But I don't think Tony ever felt comfortable standing up in those meetings and talking to Pinsky and Haas and foresight and all the people that were and pat patrick i mean i think he was a little intimidated then when he tried to buy cart in houston in 91 he he admitted later he was very ill-prepared he didn't have he he low-balled him he didn't have a good speech and they they just kind of laughed at him that we're not taking we're not taking that offer so a little bit of give and take on both sides would have helped big time Let's go to Gary Chin. Robin, can you tell us a story about how you first heard about Penske's 1994 Mercedes 500i, The Beast? Uh, standing in the second turn, and, uh, God, who was it? It might have been AJ. Came out on his little motorcycle, and he was just, he was driving around, he was looking, I think, Robbie Gordon or heard of, maybe I can't remember who was driving for him then in 94, but uh, Al Unser Jr. came off a of turn two. Herda. And, yeah, it was Herda. Al Unser Jr. came off a of turn two, and Foyt just, he, and, and Foyt said, oh my God, or, you know, uh, did you see that? And I'm like, no, what? And he's like, he looked like a top fuel car. Look, there's Mark, you know, and he was, he was saying, he thought he could see marks on the track. You know, he could, thought he could see tire marks on the track. Well, it turned out you could eventually. And then Al Jr. got in trouble because Roger told him, don't ever don't ever run one hot lap during the whole month of May. You run two corners, but you do not run a whole lap. So, you know, I think everybody was just, I mean, nobody really understood it. I mean, everybody was pretty blindsided. And you know what? Even in qualifying, even though they should have had the front row, I don't know that we thought they had that that huge an advantage, but I think Mario was the first guy that spoke up and said, we're all running for second place here, boys. Cause he, you know, 
he paid real he paid a lot more attention to that than I think most of us did. But I mean, it wasn't like the turban where you just every day everybody was like, "Oh my God, that thing's going so fast through the corners, we can't beat him, and you know, we got no chance." Uh, so it, again, Rogers kept two of the greatest secrets in the history of racing, hadn't he? <laughs> mm-hmm. Brian Dorchik, very important question. Robin, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? Good God, I don't know. Who got chocolate chip? There we go. Uh, Ryan Terpstra says, Robin, you have to bet this month's paycheck. I'll give you a nine figure spread. You have to come within a hundred million on the sale price of IMS. What's your bet? Anywhere between 250 and 500 million. That's, that's the best I can give you. Miles refuses to give me any hints. And there's about, there's about 16 people that know and they're, and none of, and they're all sworn to secrecy. So. Good luck on figuring that one out. But I think the thing, Marshall, I'll ask you, if it was $500 million or if it was 350 or it was 250 or whatever it was, were you surprised that it wasn't – you, were you surprised that it was that low? Because we we've guessed for the last 50 years what's the Speedway worth, and no one could ever, you know, no one could ever come up with a number. See, that's part of my ignorance. If that facility was – anywhere near where i live it'd be in the trillions because that's what land costs out here i don't know the real estate prices in speedway indiana but i do know that one of my favorite all-time graphics is the overhead photo of ims with all of the other yankee stadium the vatican uh the kentucky derby all the different major sporting facilities that could fit inside the four corners uh inside the facility just it's massive expanse so uh i don't know what the the physical value is for that amount of land i can tell you though just in terms of things that you really never thought you could buy uh boy i mean this it's next to buying monza or i mean granted it's done on streets but you know this is just fantasy land like hey we've bought the monaco grand prix and you go but wait a minute aren't you know like it just i realized that obviously it was purchased by you know mr holman a long time ago again i get that it's traded hands many times but i mean just it's still crazy to contemplate that something of that size that much grandeur that international you know, uh, fame could actually trade hands. It's just kind of nuts. So I don't, yeah, I would say at least in the Californian mindset, the fact that it's not believed to be a billion dollars, that thing, that kind of blows me away. Uh huh. Let's go to Scott. Go ahead. Sorry. No, no, I I just, it's just, it's a, it's a fascinating topic that everybody wants to know, but you're like, boys and girls, good luck. Cause it ain't like your house. It's not like you're in a neighborhood and your house sells for, you know, six hundred fifty thousand dollars. So you've got a ballpark figure. This this isn't sold off very often. Uh, as a matter of fact, twice. <laughs> I would like to confirm the rumor that I mentioned to you that I made up that all the G two and G three that second generation and third generation family members when they got their their slice of this uh went down to what is it hubler chevrolet and bought new corvettes and uh, and hummers and raided the place um 
Let's go to Scott Richards, who says, is there any truth to the story that John Menard offered Dale Earnhardt a ride at the 1995 Indy 500? He says, I've heard it for years, but never knew the real story. Gosh, you know, I, I remember interviewing Earnhardt once about uh, running an Indy car, and he said he would like to go to Michigan by himself and drive around like Bill Elliott did. And I think uh, one of the Bodines did, but I don't think he ever said he'd like to race one. Go to Bryson Frank. Says, Robin, what was the most amazing car you've ever seen run around IMS? Uh, He says, during the Iowa weekend this year, our friend Michael Lashmitt in his vintage vintage indie registry, as I try to get my lips to work, I had a Lotus 56 turbine car running, and it just made me, a college student, envy the people who saw true innovation at IMS. So, since you've already mentioned the turbine, what are some of the other, I don't know, uh, you'd have to say the Mallard, right? The fact that it ever went around the Speedway might be an amazing thing. Kidding aside, what are some of the cars that you think back on and go, holy crap, I saw that thing and it couldn't be believed? Well, the first car I ever remember was the Novi just because it sounded like no other car and it rattled the seats in the, in the upper deck. And, and you know, I mean, the, the Novi, there was nothing like it. And, uh, the twin engine Porsche, uh, the, the, uh, the late, the George Sally lay down the blonde AP lay down cars, um, uh, Perks Novi, they put in the front row. Uh, obviously the Lotuses when Colin Chapman, and then you had the McLarens when they showed up, there was nothing You've never seen anything like a McLaren. Uh, most of Dan Gurney's Eagles were just, you know, Gurney's Eagle in 1980, 81 with Mike Mosley was just, I still think it's the prettiest Indy car ever, and it was always Dan's favorite. But I think what was cool about the 60s, 70s, 80s is you waited till May. There weren't, there wasn't Twitter or the internet or you just waited. You heard about a test in Phoenix and, you couldn't wait to see what the new car that they're going to unveil May 1st looked like. And I think that was part of the anticipation and part of why Indy qualifying and practice was such a big deal because people really were into how the cars looked and sounded as much as they were almost having favorite drivers. Let's go to Joshua Ponce. Hey guys, what are each of you most excited about for next season? Given all the news that's come up in the past weeks. You go first. Uh, I want to see. I want to see how good, how much better Colton Hurd is going to be in year two. I want to see Pato Award kick some ass. Um, I just want to see, you know, uh, Santino Ferrucci. I want to see him continue his climb. I mean, I I realize it's a young guy's theme. Oliver Askew. I want to see him get going. I want to see Felix Rosenquist. I think he's going to win a couple races. So I just think. How are the young guys going to stack up against the Scott Dixons and the Hunter Rays, the Rossies? Uh, I think I'm looking forward to that, those battles. I would say the spam situation interests me for sure. Knowing that although Arrow has been spending a lot of money recently, the team has been a midfield program, uh, barring Robert Wickens' rather amazing uh, incomplete 2018 season. I am fascinated to see how the infusion of additional cash from McLaren and sponsors 
Uh, Gilda Farron, in a sporting technical leadership role, will influence things. If, what, and how McLaren's technical resources bleed over and help uh, the uh, McLaren SP team. I still find it really bizarre, Robin, that the team is owned 100% by Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson, and yet they're reduced to initials in the team name, Arrow McLaren SP. Just saying, you know, you own the damn thing and you guys only get one letter in the team name. That's interesting. I realize that, you know, we're, we're talking about it's been Arrow SPM, but at least, you know, uh, it was between these two men that own things that chose to do that. It just seems a little strange that McLaren, which doesn't own a penny of the team. Um, anyways, they get the full billing. Um, how about Arrow Sam and Rick M? And then just, yeah, anyways, um, that interests me. The Colton Herta angle for sure, I think, is going to be fascinating. I Knowing that Nathan O'Rourke is going to maintain his role as, as his engineer, I what's going to be curious for me there, and I'll just throw out one or two more things here, but Rossi has become top dog, right, right Robin? We've seen that the last two seasons, and you know, there was a lot of cartoon anvils falling on Hunter Ray. Uh, reduce that frequency. And I think he's, you know, I think it's a much closer run for who's the top dog there. But just if we assume that Rossi's going to kind of stay P one in the championship contention role, I'm going to be, I'm cannot wait to see if young Colton Herta challenges Rossi for that distinction, right? Rossi and the team faded a little bit as the season wound down. The exact opposite happened. Uh, for Colton, that's going to be something I really cannot wait to see. I'll throw one other, one or two others. How's this? I can't wait to see what Jack Harvey is going to be able to do over the course of a full season. Uh, he has Andy Listis, who's uh, was meant to be Pato's engineer, I believe, or maybe even Colton's uh, last year before things kind of fell apart on the Harding two car program. He is super highly regarded. So, I think the combination of Jack for a full season plus Andy, uh, plus this alignment with Andretti, I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do. And I'll just throw, why don't we go with Foyt? I mean, we all want to see them succeed. Uh, I haven't written the story about someone new that they've hired him. Hopefully I'll get that done tomorrow. But what's going to happen there? You know, I've heard stories of young drivers from Europe visiting, possibly about coming and driving for them next year. We still haven't heard anything formal about our man, Tony Kanon. We don't know what's going to happen there, what won't happen there. Um, who's going to drive for them? Who's going to engineer? What? How are they going to remove the, I don't want to say rot, but I mean, things have not been good there for a while. What are they going to do to remove those problems can they will they will they make the necessary changes have they done enough again it's a fascinating thing most people robin love the foyt program part of me wonders do bigger changes need to happen beyond driving and engineering for it to actually get back to being a a serious competitor in the series don't know but those are some of the things i'm looking forward to for next year for sure Yep, and uh, I called AJ 
I guess two days ago, and I just said, "Hey, who the hell is going to drive your cars?" He says, "We're still working on it." So that's all I got. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Nathan Cook says, "Robin, if you were to pick a gambling partner from the IndyCar paddock, who would it be?" Well, it'd be Foyt because he gets pretty good tipped on horses, mm. and. Uh, you know, I don't. I mean, he, AJ. I've thrown the dice with him a couple of times. He likes to. He likes to throw the dice. So that's that. He he'd probably be. You know, uh, today's race drivers are pretty pragmatic. They're pretty, these guys are pretty smart. Not too many of them throw their money away gambling. So they gamble on the racetrack, but they don't necessarily gamble uh, in a casino. Which you know, I guess that makes sense. Especially most of them are family guys, and they got wives and kids to take care of. So you know. It's only reprobates like me that have no one to hurt but themselves and enjoy <laughs> the pain of losing a last-second basket or field goal. Is I get what I deserve. Should we tell folks there's a new T-shirt coming they can buy that that <laughs> no, includes the word no. gambling on it? We got to let them see it first. Okay, got to get that photo of you wearing it first, and uh, uh, I get it this weekend, brother. Don't you worry. Let's go to Windy Car. At car underscore windy on Twitter. What is Robin's top five things everyone should do once of their once in their life in Indiana? Oh my God! Well, uh, if you like racing, you've got to go to the Speedway Museum and take a lap around the track in a tour bus. Uh, you need to go to the Working Man's Friend and have a double cheeseburger for lunch. Uh, you need to. Um, Probably go to Bloomington or Paragon or Putnamville. They're all within an hour of Indianapolis or Kokomo and watch a sprint car race, a non-wing sprint car race. Uh, gosh, what else do they need to do? Um, I don't know. Those are, That's a good start, those three things. Um, I suppose uh, go to have breakfast at Charlie Brown's and run into A.J. Foyt. He only eats every he eats every breakfast there in May and, and, and sometimes lunch if it's raining. So at least you could say hi to the king uh, at Charlie Brown's. And if you go on Fridays, you can see Lee Kuzman and Bill Vukovic and Johnny Parsons and Merle Bettenhausen and a bunch of old drivers. You can tell them because most of them are burnt. They've all got scars on their face from being burned. Some are missing limbs. Most of them limp. They're easy to pick out. <laughs> I love it. All right, I'm going to pick a, a selection here of questions as we start to wind down you have uh i don't know some pornography to enjoy or something like that i don't want to keep you from your fun here uh let's see philip schmitz robin in a recent article on racer.com you mentioned the possibility of fernando alonso being with andretti for next year's indy 500 he says where's honda at though when it comes to alonso is it still a firm no or is there a possibility of moving on from the past. Well, I think Michael made it pretty clear in that Michael Andretti made it pretty clear in that story that he, he loves Alonzo and he wants to run him, but the big hurdle is Honda and no, it hasn't been overcome yet. And, you know, I don't know if it will. I mean, I think last summer they tried, uh, you know, they, they, I think the Honda people tried to ask Japan, could we, when, when Zach Brown made Michael his big offer to be his partner on in his team, I think they said, you know, can we forgive and forget and let uh, 
and let these guys run a Honda and they were denied. So I don't know that, I don't know if Honda Japan is more mad at McLaren or Alonzo or it's, it's the same, but, um, you know, I, after a while, I bygones be bygones. Don't, I'm not sure that flies in the Japanese culture. I would have to completely agree there. I think Michael's desire to run Fernando is awesome. Yep. Do I think he needs to start uh, Marco Motorsports uh, and get a Chevy lease to do it to run Fernando? Probably. Um, let's go to Daniel Kincaid. This is kind of the first silly season question we've gotten, I think. What will Ed Carpenter Racing's lineup look like in 2020? Two full-time cars and Ed on the ovals? Uh, three full-time? Or just the same as it's been with one full-time? And one split with Ed and someone else. You want to uh, to fill in what you know and what we know because we've actually were emailing about this very topic back and forth today, Daniel. Uh, or should well, we not tell everything because we don't have it all confirmed yet? Yeah, I don't think we should tell everything because you know, I mean, how's this? Talk, Scuderia talk, Corsa. I don't think you're going to see them involved. Um, that would right. be a big surprise. So I think we can safely say that relationship came to a conclusion. Um, on the, what, the number 21 entry? No, 20, Ed's car. Uh, or at least whenever uh, Ed Jones was driving that. We know Ed Jones isn't going to be back. Uh, that I think we've said, or that's been a fairly well-known thing. Uh, we How's this? We can throw out some things that we think are going to happen, but we can't say 100%. We know that Renus VK uh, sure has been buddied up pretty closely with them. We expect he will be a full-time IndyCar driver next year. Uh, is that going to be with Ed Carpenter? Is that going to be with Carlin? We'll have to see. Uh, is there someone else we don't know about that he could be uh, driving for? We'll have to see. But we've heard that Renus is going to be a full-timer. So let's pontificate there for a moment uh, for Daniel, Robin. So if we look at the current lineup, which has been, as he mentioned, one car with Ed in it on the ovals and someone else doing the road and street courses, and then the other car being a full-season driver. If they were to stay with the current structure, and we think Renus VK might be a full-time guy with that team, that would mean that someone was possibly losing a seat? Right. And I think, but I think he'll... He'll have two for sure, don't you? I mean, I think, I, I do think that they'll have uh, have two cars. You know, there was talk that maybe Ed would would uh, have two full time cars and he just run the Indy five hundred. But I, I don't. You know, Ed's real. He doesn't. He doesn't give you a lot. I mean, he keeps things pretty close to the vest, and he let. I think he likes to let his press release do the talking, and not a lot of fact. You know, there's never. He's another place that there's not a lot of leaks out of the. Ed Carpenter Racing, they they run a pretty tight ship, and everybody keeps their mouth shut. So they don't. I don't it. think they like us. So that makes it even easier. No, they like us. No, they They're, don't like uh, us. They like us. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Uh, can't can't honestly say, Daniel. Uh, we've we've heard a variety of things. Uh, if I'm just talking about things that make sense to me, Connor Daly's an American. Connor Daly has at least one sponsor in the Air Force that is certainly American. Would say that being aligned with an American engine manufacturer makes a lot of sense. I realize that 
he's been with Japanese manufacturers too. But regardless, uh, if I'm just looking at possibilities, whether it's sharing a car with Ed or maybe being full-time, uh, Connor Daly, All-American Kid, All-American Sponsor, Super American Team, you know, if I had to guess, would I say some sort of, if all the planets aligned, Ed Carpenter, Connor Daly, and Holland's fine. I think this kid's going to be the big shock of the year next year. Uh, Renus VK, would that be a lineup to possibly shake out? Wouldn't surprise me. Wouldn't surprise me. Let's go to Mark Sanchez. Says, greetings, guys. Not a question, but a perspective. He says, uh, I'm always open to new things that can make the sport better. If there's anything I do ask of Roger Penske, it's please keep Mr. Holman's legacy in mind as you look to the future and keep the 500 affordable for folks who are more than a few rungs down from the top steps on the economic ladder. Mark says, I have the ability still to afford an Indy 500 weekend and faithfully renew our tickets each year. So please don't be like other sports and price people out of the market. He also says, by the way, ban coolers and we riot. Um, that's a, <laughs> I love that, by the way, Mark. That's that's something, maybe share some thoughts on this. I know, I know you mentioned some of the pricing stuff at the open, but the concept of, yeah, do we expect Roger to upgrade things in general, make it a little more high-end at the 500 or, you know, at IMS? I think we could expect that, but do you think he has the, the concept of, you know, making everything, you know, dialing up prices and everything actually is going to disenfranchise a lot of people. And secondly, we've gotten a lot of questions, you in the mailbag and me here from a number of people on the exact topic of coolers and what folks are allowed to bring in. And do not take that away and make us, you know, buy everything inside the facility. I don't know which one of those two you want to take, but the one about coolers clearly is a super hot button issue for a lot of people that love the 500 and just IMS in general. Well, you think about this, Marshall. When I was a kid and families would be allowed to drive into the infield and park for free and they'd bring their coolers and their soft drinks and beers and, and, and cold sandwiches, and that's how they spent the day. That's how they became fans. That's how they grew into being fans. But as far as – I was talking to Mark Miles about this the other day. You go to a, an NF, a Colts game the other day, you know, a buddy of mine had a couple of tickets he was trying to sell. They were $240 a piece. That's one game. Uh, same thing for an NBA game. The pricing is insane for both. Uh, so – in that context, the Indy 500 is still a bargain at $125 or 200 You know, your most expensive seats are, I, I guess there's some sweet tickets that are 600 bucks, but that includes, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and whatever. But the, for the most part, you can sit in the corner at Indy, the, the best seat in the house in a Vista for $125, and that's pretty damn reasonable. And I don't see that. I don't I don't see Roger getting greedy and and. and, and hopefully bumping that up. I think he understands, you know, we're not sold out anymore, but we're, it's, it's a good crowd and, and let's keep, you know, let's keep the people we got unless, you know, the Boston consulting group, their idea was let's gouge the people you got screw making new fans. The ones you got are going to keep paying whatever you charge. Well, I think that's terrible logic. 
and I don't think that worked. So uh, I would just I would hope that leave the coolers alone, leave the ticket prices alone, quit charging for parking, except maybe on race day, and let's go racing. There we go. Going to go to Grant Stouter. Fun question for Robin. If we founded Robin Miller's Merry Manor for retired IndyCar drivers, who gets kicked out first? Uncle Bobby for getting handsy with a nurse? Or AJ Foyt for punching a doctor who told him he didn't win bingo because that long-haired Dutchman beat him to it? Uh, I wouldn't throw any of them out because they're all my heroes and... uh we got to keep we got to keep these guys under surveillance at all time. But uh, I would say that uh, that that that's that would be a good start right there on on a retirement home, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, Bob, Uncle Bobby would uh, he'd be living in the hashtag Me Too wing for sure. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, oh good lord, and yeah, and he right and there'd be an adjoining room with his lawyer just to handle all the lawsuits that kept coming in from all the nurses and a just you name it oh yeah no that'd be great um there there'd probably be some sort of uh turkey preparation area as well um oh yeah there'd be all kinds of fun uh let's see get down to the last couple of questions for you here mark andrew says robin my question is on this deal with penske and ims regarding the museum a great treasure in all of motorsports says, what becomes of its contents? You wrote that Penske got the building, and I would assume that the foundation owns what's inside. The museum members got an email saying Tony George remains the chairman of the foundation. So what happens there? Well, the only difference is that Roger doesn't own the cars, but the cars will still be in the museum, and maybe with his connections, he brings some of his collection into the museum that he's got in Phoenix right now or brings all in. I don't know. Uh, can he attract different formula one cars from around the world based on his connections there? Possibly. So, uh, you know, I, I think they look for donors and I think Rogers, I think Roger would like to rebuild the museum someday. Uh, I mean, that's one of the things we got to ask him. Uh, he's coming back in a couple of weeks, but you know, I just, instead of just bombarding the guy, I mean, he's, He's got so many things he probably wants to look at, and that's probably one of them. Uh, Can I just throw this in because, uh, and I appreciate people's fandom and their their the various things that you know everyone has something different that they value and would want to see Roger move to the front of the list. I read something not related to the podcast, but somebody wrote something on Facebook that I saw saying, you know, the thing I really want to see Roger do, and I please. I hope that someone tells him so we need to bring back Indy 500 annuals. We need to get, you know, climber Floyd climber said, well, there's no money in it, uh, whatever. But you know, we just absolutely have to get hardbound Indy 500 annuals published again. And I'm, I'm just thinking like, I appreciate that. I own many of them. Um, where would that fit on the to do if you had a if you had a chance to speak with Roger? Are you throwing that one out? That's that doesn't crack the the top five thousand things for him to do. But again, I just love the fact that you know everybody has their different thing, and uh, you know 
uh, even making annuals come back somehow. Yeah, absolutely, Roger. Forget the making it profitable or making IndyCar, you know, self-sustaining. Make books for Marshall and three other people to buy. Well, I think that's the thing that that will be passed on to somebody. Uh, Roger obviously would make that. But it's just like they used to put out those really cool, every year they'd put out the cool media kits. Hell, you could sell those. I mean, you could you pay for those by selling them because fans would buy them. And the, the 500-yearbook was, when Carl Hungus had it, he sold 5,000 every year to the same 5,000 people. And it was a nice thing because you that was, for guys like us, you just grab it, open it, and go right to that year and, that, and who did what and qualifying and practice. It was just, it was really handy. And it was something that people like to collect. Uh, do the, do the, do race fans today have that same desire to collect all that stuff? I don't know. Every time I go to the memorabilia show with you and May, it's a lot of the same faces. There are some young people there, but no, there aren't. Don't, people. don't lie to people. They're, they're, they're the kids that have been forced to sit there with grandpa selling stuff. Oh, did I, I told you I'm thinking of uh, renting a, 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 a table, a booth next May to sell some of my crap because I just need to get rid of it. I need to turn the money that I, the money that I turned into memorabilia and, and crap. I need to turn back into money. So yeah, um, I'm not going to be old. Maybe I'll get a young person there though. So I can say there is an actual young person. Oh, well, there's a, there were some young people at Toronto Motorsports last year. We saw, I, I actually documented the fact there were some young people there, Wow. but I think they think that'd be good. You should sell that stuff. And, uh, uh, I think there's always the thing that is nobody has more press kit than you do. So you might as well share them with the world. No, those are the things I'm not selling. Uh, oh, you're not- no, okay. no, no, no. I'm a little bit of a press kit hoarder, not whore hoarder in that Her. regard. Her. Uh, all right. We're going to go to, we got two more. I'm going to go to Andre good. Who says for Marshall and Robin, which engine manufacturer do you think has the best chance of becoming the third with Roger in charge. So Robin Miller, racer magazines, technical guru, the person with his finger and all appendages on the auto industry, who's going to join us as our third uh, engine manufacturer. I think the blue oval, I think Ford, I think Roger talks Edsel Ford into coming back. Completely agree. Gee, that was easy. I mean, it's almost like we know what we're talking about, even though we don't, but we're really good at pretending. All right, so we're actually going to close the show on something that's going to make us think. So we blame you, Mike Jablo. How dare you for sending in something that requires us to not just blow smoke out of our backsides. Says, guys, great reporting and follow-up on Roger Bunn's Speedway and the quote IRL. I don't know if you've noticed, Robin, but a number of people love the fact that RP still refers to the NTT IndyCar series as the IRL. It's just awesome. Um, Mike, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Mike says on the latest MP podcast, Michael Andretti expressed a need to increase the value of the owner's franchises and reduce the budget by $1 million. What are your thoughts on how to achieve these objectives? And maybe I'll just, let's start on this. So cart championship auto racing teams. It, came to life with key team owners, many of them wealthy, not all, but many of them wealthy, and a franchise system was established. So the 
at this point, it was all men. The men who owned the teams were, you know, really the folks that owned the show. I realized that there were, you know, cart presidents and CEOs and chief financial officers. I realized that there was a full business structure put in place, but this was something created by the owners. And as franchise owners, they actually had an ownership stake in this property. Share with folks what cart was, how it was founded, and how this wasn't what we have today with uh, the, the NTT IndyCar series where indeed people own teams, but there's no, quote, value to them uh, in terms of maybe like we think in the NFL, NBA, etc., where, you know, Steve Ballmer buys the Clippers for $2 billion. That's an actual property that can be purchased that has public value. Uh, how, how are things done in cart that are different than today, for those who don't know? Uh, well, I think the only reason anybody ever made any money in cart was because it went public and they all sold their stock and made a lot of money, except Derek Walker, who put his back in and reinvested in his team, and Jerry Forsythe, who kept buying stock when the when the bottom was falling out of it. But that was the only way they ever got any money. And I always questioned when they when it went public, I used to think, they don't have any tangible property. They got contracts with racetracks and they got two or three transporters to take stuff to races with pace cars and stuff. But what do they actually own? And it's a good, it's a great question. How do you make an IndyCar team owner's franchise valuable? Uh, because right now people would look at, you know, when people come into racing, I, I think you're probably as blown away as I am that you can still get people like the Mike Shanks of the world that are going to, you're not going to make any money, Mike, and we know you love it, but how are you going to, how do you justify this? Because you're a racer and you want to do this and, and good for you, but how many, I'm just blown away we have as many full-time cars as we do because it's so expensive and there's no chance to make money. So I have no idea, but if anybody has an idea how to make money, it'll be Roger Penske. And to that point, of the many things Roger needs to do, and I do mean need, it's looking at the business of IndyCar, looking at its future, realizing that, as I wrote and others have written, the vast majority of its team owners are 50-plus. A number of them are in their 60s. A couple are in their 80s. There is not other than young George Steinbrenner, the fourth, there's no new blood on the team ownership front, but even then, and, and no disrespect to George, George doesn't own anything to my knowledge, right? He hasn't bought cars. He hasn't bought transporters. He isn't paying people's salaries directly. Uh, I know that, you know, through family and such, there's m- some money that's been brought in, but this isn't a kid who went and leased a shop in Brownsburg bought a couple of Delara DW12s, got an engine lease, got a tire lease, yada, 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 and is going racing. He has you know, become a co-co-co-owner on a single entry uh, next year with Colton Herter driving it. One of the, of the many things Roger needs to look at, I would say a very pressing item that needs to be addressed, as Mike mentions here, it's the economics of IndyCar. How can with this next formula 
engine formula, chassis formula, that's really going to be the time where this would happen in 2022-ish, 23. How can we turn this into something where a profit could be generated? Realize that IndyCar has a different model, right? If you look at salary caps and stick and ball sports, they try and limit how much bleeding that can be done. Racing's a lot different. Right, at least in IndyCar, there's nothing limiting a team in how much they spend, but there does need to be something that's done to look at how can we make this something that is not pretty much a guaranteed uh, money pit in order to get people to want to come in and start teams, whether it's from scratch or those like a Shank, as you mentioned, who, you know, they were an open wheel in Atlantic's then went over and were in sports cars for a long time, still there and has kind of branched out to come over here. Real passion. We haven't seen, you know, a lot of folks step up to the plate um, with the ability to run proper, solid year-after-year teams. You know, thank goodness Trevor Carlin and Chili Chilton decided to do this. They shut down their three-car Indy Lights team to do it, unfortunately. And even now, you know, in their second year last year, they had serious issues funding the whole thing. Uh, Ricardo Junkos, right? Bless Ricardo. He's got two cars. Put one on track for what? Four races last year, Robin? Maybe something like that. Um, when I we don't know what's going to happen next year. Uh, Dragon Speed, our pal Elton Julian, right? They did a couple of races. Um, we hope they're going to be back for more, believe they're going to be back for more, but this all just comes back to a point of, as Mike mentions, you know, we're thankful that those who've chosen to enter IndyCar have, but at least among all those who've come in of late, the vast majority are not financially secure, uh, or even full time. And so as Michael Andretti mentioned, Right off the bat, we need to drop our budgets by about 20%, 15 20% something. Take a million dollars off the top, things start to become easier. I don't have the answer right now to how that's done other than to start trimming races from the schedule. Um, I think it might be more a question of what can be done to increase the money coming in. So maybe that's the angle, Robin. So if IndyCar spends $25 million a year on leader circle – roughly a million dollars per full-time entry what will it take to get that to 50 how long would it take to get that to 50 so that every team gets two million per entry maybe that's the way you cover that million dollar gap right now um i don't know which way is easier do you have an idea on whether cutting money or trying to bring in more would have better odds much easier to bring in i mean when you got a guy like roger pinsky that's why i'm hopeful a title sponsor and a way to boost through the purses uh, of the seventeen of the other sixteen races. That, that I just, I mean, I, I think you you keep cutting corners. What I, what was Formula One talking about getting rid of carbon fiber in the year twenty thirty or some crap? I mean, you know, sure. It, but you're so far down the road in safety and in development and stuff like that. I think it's going to be so hard to. I think they've cut budgets. I mean, you know more about it than I do, but I think they've cut budgets about as much as they can. Get Firestone to, to to reduce the price of tires. Try and get free fuel again. There's just I don't know. It's 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 baby steps. But with Roger Penske, maybe he has the I. Maybe he can sell something that nobody's thought about because of his connections and his 
and the, his strategies. I mean, I, I think that's the best. The best thing in this whole Roger Penske takeover is is that the possibilities might be endless on what he can he can achieve here in the next two or three years with what with with the knowledge that he's got about racing and and the and just the the wherewithal he has to find money and to and promote people and make them part of it. And he's he's done a great job his whole life of selling. Look at the sponsorships he's had and how many years he's kept them because the people were so they were so thankful and they were so it worked out exactly what Pinsky told him or, or maybe even more. So it was worth the money they invested and, and he could show that to him. So I just think it's Roger Pinsky against the world right now, trying to bring as much money as he can and hopefully get these. I mean, if they could get it to 1.5 million for, for a leader circle, it'd be great. Let's wrap on this because I'm completely ignorant. Well, period. That's a great standalone statement. I'm also completely ignorant when it comes to gambling. So I know if we talk, Robin, about stick and ball sports, even NASCAR, uh, money coming back to them from TV contracts, right? That's a big thing. We know that that's not really a thing in IndyCar. So we don't expect that to become a thing. What about if I'm just trying to come up with new things that could be ways of generating money? Gambling, since we expect betting, online betting, and who knows what what other forms, since we expect that to reach into the Indy 500 formally, officially, for the first time here next year, I guess, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Is there any money to be made Is there uh, for the teams? Is there any kind of, you know, I don't know if it's franchise or licensing rights or percentage or something, you know, if, if RP and company were to do a deal with, I don't know, pick one of the online, big, you know, online gambling, um, companies. Is there some sort of way where that could be prosperous for teams somehow? I don't know enough about gambling to know if that could be done again. Ignorance here. Maybe fill me in. Not the way it's structured right now, because unless you have paramutual windows, which Mark miles say will never happen at the speedway where you can walk up like Churchill downs and bet, and then you could, then the teams would share some of the purse and some of the sorry so the, the teams then could share whatever the take was and you know split it with the track split it with the team that's the one thing that would that's the worst thing about this gambling thing that that money doesn't the teams don't realize any of it and if the speedway makes a deal with Caesar's Palace uh to help promote it then maybe they get it a little bit but Right now, there's a lot of unknowns about this gambling thing, and right now you can only bet it on your cell phone, which means the Speedway is really going to have to upgrade their Wi-Fi system if people are going to be betting on the race next year. And there's a restart on lap 25, and 65,000 people bet that Ed Carpenter is going lead to lead the next lap. You better have some technology to figure that out in a hurry. But again, it's the one thing you're thinking when I first heard gambling – great, this is a way that we can get some money into the purses, we can get some money into the teams, but the way it's set up right now, that's not going to happen. All right, well, so much for that idea. I thought we were going to close on a high, but now I'm even more depressed. Well, I've depressed you. I'm I'm one hour and 30 minutes and 29 seconds. That's enough. Oh, should I have been recording this? Damn it. Yet again, I have forgotten. Go cook dinner for your wife.
Well, what about me? I'm a grown boy. Uh, clearly, well, I'm. You, I, 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 I clearly I don't eat enough. <laughs> All right, Miller. Well, thank you uh, again. Thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We got a lot. I don't know. It's almost like there's news recently that folks want to talk about. So, I'm hoping next week's show is going to be a pretty normal affair. And I'm not sure who the guest is going to be. Uh, it might be Michael Shank. It might be Brian Herta. So one of those two scallywags will join us and uh, probably give us more the, stuff. The, two, the, two are, the two corners that tell the truth all the time? That'd be a good, that'd be a good mess. That's a good pairing. I was thinking of inviting Ed Carpenter on, but then I realized, I don't know if he's going to, hey, Ed, got a lot of questions about how Roger Penske might do a better job than your stepdad. Um, that's probably not uh, the kind of things that anyone would want to answer. So no, but I think I think Ed would be surprised. I think he I think he's he's got a good sense of humor. He's just kind of dry, and and he uh, I don't know. I, I just I like the way he goes about racing and the way he runs his team and stuff. So I think all three of those guys, or two of them, or one of them, all three would be good. I like Ed. We give him a hard time because he gives us a hard time. That's what you're supposed <laughs> to do, right? All right, well, okay, go, MP. go do whatever Robin Miller does at 10.08 p.m. on a Wednesday evening, and I'll talk to you soon, brother. I'm going to bet the Lakers and Golden State because your Golden State Warriors suck. I'm betting the, I'm betting the L.A. Lakers, baby. <sighs> My uh, 49ers lost, too. My wife's a Seahawks fan, and she was out there cheering, clapping her behind off as they lost, as my 49ers lost. Russell Wilson, the the hell of a game, though. Russell Wilson is a bitch. Well, there we go. All right, Robin Miller, I'll talk to you later. See you, Pink.